Good evening. Can I, uh, may I add my personal welcome to that of the believers here? We're pleased to see everybody. I want to read with you, please, in the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter number 2. The Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 2. one of the chapter <clears throat> the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now we trust that God will bless this reading to us in his good will. It would be my purpose as the Lord gives us help. We'll just go through probably this chapter over the next two or three nights. And you might wonder why uh, we've gone to what might well be for some quite an obscure chapter of the Bible. Mind you, you're not doing yourself many favors if it is an obscure chapter. Perhaps, sadly, the Old Testament scriptures are somewhat neglected amongst the people of God today. So let me ask a question at the outset, please. Just answer it within your own heart and your own mind, but what is your personal spiritual horizon? How far ahead are you looking? Well, some might say within themselves they might say well the Lord is coming the Lord's coming to the air and it could be today and when the Lord comes to the air then the church is going to be snatched up to heaven absolutely right praise the Lord that's the glorious hope of the people of God what then you say well do I really need to be worried about what then I mean, after all, I'll be in heaven and uh, everything else will just happen. Do I need to think beyond that? Well, yes, you certainly do need to think beyond that because uh, the scripture tells us that we have to consider the judgment seat of Christ. So clearly we're to look just beyond 
the, the act and the fact of being taken home to heaven. The judgment seat of Christ. Hmm, we don't like to think about that too much, do we? And yet the Bible says we should, we ought to, we need to. We need to think about what we're building into the local assembly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We need to think about our attitude to our brethren. Romans chapter 14. We need to think about the deeds done in the body. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because all these things we're going to be accountable for. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not a doctrine, brethren and sisters. A fact. A fact. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what's all that about? You say, well, the brethren have told us that there's uh, nothing to do with sin at the judgment seat of Christ because the sin question's already been dealt with. Absolutely true. Praise God for that. So the judgment seat of Christ isn't about sorting out sins or anything like this. So what's it for? Well, we understand from Paul's writings, we understand from Peter's writings that that one of the outcomes of the judgment seat of Christ is that crowns will be awarded. And so if crowns are awarded, what's that for? Ah, you say, I think I know the answer to that one. Uh, the brethren say, well, we're given crowns so that we can cast them at the feet of the Saviour. Well, with the deepest of respect, the brethren might say that, but the Bible doesn't. No, crowns will be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ. For what reason? Well, the reason is found in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to what we would call today first generation Christians. Not Christians with a heritage of truth. Not Christians with generations of other Christians who have taught them. These were folks saved largely out of idolatry. Some of them delivered out of Judaism. And to first generation Christians, with all kinds of baggage and other problems, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Let me ask the question that Paul did to the Corinthians. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Where's your horizon, my brother, my dear sister? What are you looking forward to? Some vague notion of being in heaven? You say, well, it'll be with Christ, we'll see him, we'll know him, we'll be like him. Praise God, that's all true. But do we understand? Is it affecting us in our thinking that there will be work for us to do once we have gone home to heaven once we have stood before the judgment seat of Christ, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's fact. You say, judge in what way? Well, the word is really administer. Not the thought of like a magistrate sitting and dispensing judgment and, and passing sentence. That's not the thought. Paul is teaching these Corinthian believers who were already in the habit of settling scores and differences with their brethren by, by taking them to the magistrates of this world and taking them to court and suing them uh, and, and all this kind of thing. And Paul says, oh, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, wait, 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 why are you as Christians taking your petty matters 
to the courts of the ungodly. Don't you understand that one day you're going to be administering the world? How is it then that you can't administer your small and petty matters down here? And he wants these Corinthians to start to get a sense of the tremendous dignity and the tremendous responsibility of a work that they are going to have once they have been taken home to heaven. Once other events have happened here upon the face of the earth. I'm sorry if this is too repetitive, but let me ask again. What is your spiritual horizon? As a Christian, how far ahead are you looking? Is it really just, not just in the sense of only, it is a tremendous thing to be with Christ, of course. And it will be a tremendous thing to be at home in heaven, that's right. But what about after that? You know full well it's not about floating around on a, a cloud with a harp or something like this. No, no, there's something very, very important to be done. And, and the reason why that ties in with what we have read together this evening is that uh, in these first six chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is given a charge by the Lord to bring an indictment against the nation of Israel. He's um, prophesying and, and laboring for the Lord in a particularly uh, tumultuous time of the nation's history. Very soon, if not already, as Isaiah speaks in this chapter, the bulk of the nation of Israel, it is already divided since the reign of King Solomon. Ten tribes now form the northern kingdom known as Israel. The remaining two tribes now form the southern kingdom known as Judah. And Israel is teetering on the brink, if it hasn't already gone over, it is teetering on the brink of being taken into Assyrian exile. The Assyrian Empire is going to be used of God as the agent of his judgment upon his people. Since they broke away from the rest of the nation at the end of the reign of Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel has been ruled by an unbroken succession of wicked kings. They have gone deeper and deeper into idolatry, deeper, further and further away from God's intention for them. He has sent prophets to them. They've stoned them. They've rejected them. So God has now said, right, what is going to happen is that I'm going to allow the Assyrian Empire to take you into captivity. And that's exactly what happened. And from that captivity, the northern kingdom of Israel has never emerged. That was the end of its identity. Some 750 years or so before the Lord came into the world. They've never regained that identity. In fact, they're known today by some as the lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost to God. He knows his people. But historically they've gone. There's no identity left for them. And uh, one of the things that, that was done by the Assyrians um, as in their empire they had followed the Egyptian empire. That was really the first great empire that impinges upon biblical history. After Egypt went down so Assyria arose. The Assyrian Empire isn't going to last a lot longer because interestingly God is going to use them 
to take his people into captivity and then once they've done that he's going to judge them for doing it so that doesn't sound very fair doesn't sound very nice does it you know for God to sovereignly use an empire and say now I want you to be the channel of my chastisement upon my people and then when they've done that then God judges them but God is perfectly righteous in doing that because in fact what is going to happen in the course of history here is that the Assyrian Empire has long wanted and long desired to overthrow the people of God up until now they've been hedged about up until now God has preserved his people he's kept the Assyrian at bay now he's going to take the brakes off now he's going to take off the leash and he's going to let the Assyrian do to Israel what has always been in the Assyrian's heart to do to Israel but God is holding those reins and when he releases them and he allows Assyria to chastise his people God achieves two purposes he chastises his people through this Gentile power but he also chastises the Gentile power because of their hatred of his people God is in control so now Isaiah is speaking in a day when both the northern kingdom of Israel and the Assyrian Empire are going to come to an end so the main burden that Isaiah has is not so much for the north they're beyond hope now his real burden is for Judah and he's speaking to that southern kingdom and Isaiah has a real burden because what he's going to say in this great prophecy is that just over a hundred years later Judah is going to go into captivity not now under the Assyrian but under the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar is going to rise up as the first great Gentile monarch and God is going to raise him up and one of the things God is going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar for is to take Judah into captivity notice how these judgments upon God's chosen people Israel Israel is my firstborn Israel is my son Israel the jewel of God upon the earth and God is solemnly judging his people and he's using Gentile powers to do it and he's raising up empires in fact it's Isaiah that is going to say as he speaks to the southern kingdom of Judah and warns them and says look what God has done to your northern brethren look what he's done and if you don't mind your ways he's going to do the same to you the one thing that Isaiah says about Judah's captivity that he does not say about the northern kingdom's captivity Isaiah repeatedly it comes as a repetitive message through this book Isaiah says though you're going to go into captivity you're also going to be restored again and that's the great promise of the book of Isaiah in relation to the southern kingdom of Judah yes they were going to be judged and Isaiah will go into great detail under the hand of God as to why these people are going to be judged and there's great lessons for us brethren because this is all about the chosen people of God upon whom he would pour out blessing if they would but let him and because they consistently refuse to act as the people of God God is going to judge them 
but he is going to restore them in a future day and interestingly as Isaiah prophesies about an event that's more than a hundred years away the captivity of Judah by Babylon it's Isaiah who names the very king under whose reign the word will go forth for the rebuilding of the temple now when Isaiah is speaking Solomon's temple is still in existence in a hundred years time for round figures from Isaiah writing that temple that Solomon built is going to be sacked and destroyed and burned by Nebuchadnezzar and 70 years later a Gentile monarch called Cyrus the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire which still wasn't in existence when Isaiah wrote that man is going to issue an edict that will allow the remnant of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, the house of the Lord the, the prophecy of Isaiah is, is that precise it is one of the most thrilling prophecies of scripture that more than a hundred years before the event God names the very man King Cyrus not only has he not been born not only does his empire not yet exist but the captivity from which he's going to deliver the people of God hasn't even taken place what a great God we have that's the God whom we serve so Isaiah is saying now in chapter 2 in these verses we've read he has, he has spoken uh, the first word of the Lord in chapter 1 and it's an indictment against the people of God there's some very solemn things said uh, he tells them very reminiscent of Psalm number 50 is Isaiah chapter 1 he tells them that uh, hear the word of the Lord verse 11 of chapter 1 to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me saith the Lord I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats when you come to appear before me who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts bring no more vain oblations incense is an abomination unto me the new moons and sabbaths the calling of assemblies I cannot away with it's iniquity even the solemn meeting your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth they are a trouble unto me I am weary to bear them and when ye spread forth your hands I will hide mine eyes from you yea when you make your prayers many prayers I will not hear your hands are full of blood did you ever preach my brother on verse number 18 come now and let us reason together saith the Lord though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool you've probably preached on that and you've been preaching to the ungodly may God bless it but Isaiah is speaking to the people of God Isaiah is speaking to God's people and he's saying to them as he has said many times before you're going through all the routine but your heart is far far from me and God says 
far from pleasing me, your outward appearance of religious devotion I find sickening. I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. In fact, says God, I hate it. Strong stuff, isn't it? That's how Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. And yet, having, picked, having, having brought out that tremendous uh, um, statement of God to his people that should have just stopped them in their tracks, immediately in his great kindness through Amos, God speaks the words that we have read together this evening. You're tired at the end of the day, so maybe you just didn't take an awful lot of notice of what we read. But you know, if we just go back over it again, you'll find this, that there's a tremendous and a wonderful future promised to these people who have not yet gone into the captivity from which one day they're going to be delivered. Isaiah, like many of the other Old Testament prophets, has in the burden of his ministry, he has what we might call the near view. The near view is the punishment of Judah and their recovery to go back to Jerusalem. The far view, which is still to be fulfilled, and which is really the burden of Isaiah's ministry, is that the nation of Israel will, would be punished by God and would, would lose its collective identity, but only with a view to ultimate restoration. Just to show you that this isn't only speaking about deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Just look again, please, if you would, at the verses we read. Verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now, you would find as you go through the prophetic scriptures and even into the New Testament scriptures that very often mountains are figurative of nations, of kingdoms, of governments. Remember in that section of Daniel's prophecy where the times of the Gentiles, that is, the period of time in which we are now living, where Gentile nations are in, are in control of the government of the world. Israel is no longer the nation that is governing the world. It used to be, back in these days. But God took that position away from them. And formally, when Daniel came along, just a little while after Isaiah, Daniel shows us how that God would formally take away from Israel the privilege of being at the head of the nations of the earth. And the times of the Gentiles, of which the Lord Jesus spoke of in Luke 21, the times of the Gentiles would come in. And Gentile supremacy in the world has been the fact ever since. And when Daniel is speaking about that Gentile supremacy, uh, he's, he's, he writes in chapter 2 of, of that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that, that image with the head of gold and so forth. And that image existed until a stone came down, cut out without hands, and smashed it and became a mountain. So the mountain figuratively in Daniel 2 is that of a, of a, a supreme kingdom. There are other scriptures which speak of it in the same way. In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, John speaks about seeing seven mountains and immediately goes on to say, 
These are seven kingdoms. So a mountain in scripture, of course, often spoken about literally, but here and in other scriptures the mountain is figurative. It's a picture of the supremacy of a particular kingdom. And so in verse 2, the mountain of the Lord's house, the kingdom associated with the house of the Lord, shall be established over the top of every other mountain. So there's going to be a kingdom that will exceed in power and authority every other kingdom that there is or has been. And it will be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. It will be exalted above all the hills, all the governments of the earth, and all nations shall flow unto it. Now that's never been fulfilled. It's still future. Let's just come back to ourselves for a moment, because we never want to be far away from applying this to our own Christian experience. If I were to speak to you privately as you left the building this evening and said, tell me, do you believe there's a future for Israel? I think the most of you, if not all, would say yes. But what is the implication for you? What is that implication for us? Just look at it again. This kingdom associated with Jerusalem and the house of the Lord, it is going to be the supreme kingdom and all the nations of the earth are going to flow up to it. Where does Israel stand today? Variously, according to whichever nation is looking at it, sometimes supported, more often despised, by some hated. I think if any thinking person ever wanted to be convinced of the existence of God and the fact that God has a purpose for this world he's only got to look at the existence of the nation of Israel it's really beyond human explanation how its existence when it was submerged among the Gentile nations for so many centuries only to emerge again at the end of the 1940s and clinging precariously like an ivy to a wall that nation is still surviving. It's beyond human explanation. But my brother, my sister, that nation one day will be back at the head of the nations of this world. Many people shall go and say, verse 3, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Nations seeking the law of the Lord. Nations saying, we will seek out the ways in which the Lord wants us to walk. Do you see anything like that around you today? Not a scrap. But it will be. It will be. And in a day to come, not only will Jerusalem be that glorious temple city where God is honoured, but the nations of the earth, they will come up and they will bring their sacrifices, Zechariah says in chapter 14. And men will come up and they will take hold of the skirt of a Jew and they will say, we will go with thee for God is with thee. But where do you stand in relation to that? Is it all just a kind of a 
fuzzy picture yes you believe that Israel is going to be restored but how does that affect you well how does it affect them verse 4 tells us that that the Lord will judge among the nations and rebuke many people so there's going to be a government going on their swords will be beaten into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks what a wonderful statement nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore do you know this world has been at war with itself and against God since Genesis chapter 4 this world is utterly soaked soaked in the blood and in the tears of every generation since Cain think of a world where there's no more war pop stars have sung about it people have dreamed about it men have strived for it but they've never obtained it because of course they slew the Prince of Peace but one day God has spoken one day nation will not rise up against nation neither will they learn war anymore as far back as the 1980s for a while I, I was an instructor at the, uh, the, the college of our Air Force back in the UK one of the facts we used to trot out then at that time in the 1980s was that what the West was currently spending on armament in one week was sufficient to feed the world for one year I was back in the 80s besides anything else that will happen think of the enormous peace dividend when nations no more rise up against nation when the when the art of war is, is not taught anymore but you know for that to happen tremendous changes have got to take place haven't they do you know anything about them do you think you should know about them do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world we're going to be involved somehow somewhere in all of this and it's important for this reason because in verse 5 God says through Isaiah, through Isaiah O house of Jacob come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord in the light of this in the light of the fact that you are under the direct dealings of God in the light of the fact that one day there is going to be a glorious restoration of this nation in the light of that says Isaiah walk do you know what I find as I read through my Bible that wherever we have these profound and great statements of God's future for this world and his future for the people of God that it is always always associated with a challenge to what we are and what we should be morally when you think of Peter for example in 2nd Peter 3 who's taking us to the end of all time and uh, as Peter looks 
uh, as it were, down the barrel of the day of God, the eternal state. And he looks at the whole vast panorama of time, and he said, considering, considering that all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? So can you see, my beloved brethren and sisters, that, that when God unfolds something of his ways in Scripture and something of his future purpose, it is so that there might be a profound moral effect upon me today. A knowledge of what God intends for the future is designed to affect the way I walk today. That's what Isaiah is saying to Judah. Come, let us walk in the light of of these things. So in just the same way, when Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not understand that you will judge angels? Do you not understand that the saints will judge the world? He's saying in light of the future, your walk should change today. Dare I ask again, what is your spiritual horizon? Because I find in practice that Christians who not only don't know much about what the Bible says of their future, but worse, who seem not to care very much about what the Bible says of their future, they're content just to think, well, I'm saved and I'm going home to heaven. I just happen to find, and I'm not being judgmental, that those kind of believers are usually the ones who are quite careless in the way that they live today. So that if, if by the help of God I get a better understanding of where I fit into the divine program of things still to come, as the enormity of what is going to happen dawns upon me, it regulates my life today. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want the Word of God to regulate our lives. What's that day going to be like? That, that day where it says in verse number 2, All nations shall flow unto the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. What's it going to be like? Well, you go to the very end of this same prophecy that we've read in, Isaiah chapter uh, 65, we'll look at first. And... Um, <clears throat> One of the things that Isaiah tells us there is in verse number 17. Verse number 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For, behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. 
There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days, for the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are yet speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Tremendous, eh? That's describing what we call the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. And this passage that Isaiah brings before us is not figurative, it's literal. He's describing a world that is completely different from the one we're living in at the moment. You never saw a wolf and a lamb feeding together, a lion eating straw like a bullock. Such longevity of life that should an infant die, it would still be counted an infant at a hundred years old. So tremendous change is taking place. And didn't Isaiah say in verse number 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So you scratch your head a bit and you think, well hang on a minute. A new heavens and a new earth and then the millennial kingdom? Have I got the whole program right in my mind? Doesn't John speak about a new heavens and a new earth? In Revelation as well? Yes, he does. So without being cheeky, please, just for the moment, take a deep breath, freshen up a wee bit, because I want to speak to you about new heavens and a new earth, because there's going to be two of them. You're here in Isaiah 65 and verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Go to chapter 66. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So twice over Isaiah tells us the new heavens and the new earth. Now, before we leave Isaiah, I want you to see this please. That the word that Isaiah uses in verse 17 of chapter 65 and in verse 22 of chapter 66. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That word is not the thought of bringing something brand new out of nothing. It's the thought of repairing. It's the thought of restoring. 
It's the thought of, I think you would use the expression in your own country when it comes to your own houses, remodeling. There is going to be a remodeling of the heavens and the earth. That's what Isaiah is speaking of here. In chapter 61 of the prophecy, turn back a page or so. He's speaking about the restoration of Jerusalem, verse 4 of chapter 61. They shall build the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. See that word repair in verse number 4? It is the Hebrew word used in the two verses we've read in 65 and 66 for create. It's the thought of, pre of repairing the heavens and the earth. Now with that in mind, come across please to the book of Revelation. This is really just a, a slight digression, but we just want to see that these things are straight in your mind as the Lord helps us. Chapter 21 of Revelation. John says in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Just pause there. This clearly, clearly is not millennial. It's not millennial because here in verse 1, John says, I saw and there was no more sea. But the sea is still there in the millennium. Because one of the great features of Jerusalem that Isaiah speaks of and Zechariah speaks of is that Jerusalem will become a seaport. And in fact the Mediterranean Sea will be linked right the way through to the Arabian Ocean. And a waterway will go through Jerusalem and through Olivet. So in the millennium there is sea. But here in verse 1 of Revelation 21, John says, there was no more sea. So clearly this is not millennial. Also, when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's speaking about a heaven and an earth that are completely brand new in kind and in quality. It's not the old thing patched up. It's not the old thing remodeled. The old thing has passed away. And now there is something completely new and completely different. So when you're reading in the book of Revelation, if you keep this in mind, I'm sure it will help, that verses 1 to 8 of chapter 21 are describing the eternal state. They're describing what Peter calls the day of God. This is after time has finished, when God's dealings with the earth right through the millennial period have come to an end. And the great white throne judgment has taken place. And, and the dissolution of the elements that Peter speaks of in 2 Peter 3. That's all taken place. When the old heavens and the earth have all disappeared. Then John says, I saw a new one. New heavens, new earth. So the fact that the expression is the same in English. Don't confuse the two events. 
Here in Revelation chapter 21, it's a brand new heavens and earth for the eternal state once time is finished. But in Isaiah 65 and 66, it is the heaven and earth upon which we stand and which we view today, it's that heaven and earth remodeled. But why? Because after we've been taken home to heaven at the rapture, a series of divine judgments is going to be unfolded upon this wicked rebellious world and it is going to be so extensive and so terrible and so awful that by the end of it all, as the Lord Jesus himself explained to his disciples when he was talking about these things, he says, except those days be shortened, not even the elect should be saved. That is physical. In other words, life on earth becomes unsustainable. And unless those days of divine judgment for this wicked world were brought to an end, not even God's elect people, that is, that remnant of Israel uh, that were going to be preserved through to the end of the tribulation, if those days weren't shortened, not even they could survive. It's a picture of a world that is absolutely shattered. The world can do without oil. Inconvenient? Yes. The world can do without all its mod cons. Inconvenient? Yes. Though a younger generation might not believe it, the world can do without cell phones. But one thing the world cannot do without is water. Read through the unfolding series of judgments in the book of Revelation and see how many involve divine judgment upon the water supplies of this world. In fact, forget oil, forget diamonds, forget military power and all those things. The Lord Jesus said that the character of those closing days of judgment would be such that the greatest act of blessing would be someone giving a cup of cold water in my name. Man can't live without it. Can you visualize, my dear brethren and sisters, as we today, our dear brother, our host, Dave Hamilton, took us out a little run, and uh, as we're going down the highway, we could just see on the horizon the skyline of New York. But then read Revelation chapter 16 and you'll find that it and every other city of the world is going to come crashing down. Now that's not hyperbole and it's not symbolism. That's God's statement. That's how he is going to bring his judgment upon a world system that has been perpetually, constantly in rebellion against himself. Look at the nations that we represent. And look at the way in which over the years in his rich mercy God has blessed. Look at the profound effect of the gospel within your own shores and within the country I come from. And now we both sadly have governments of men who are doing exactly what Isaiah said they would. They are legislating to call good evil. And evil good.
They've taken divine order and turned it absolutely upside down. And, and under the impetus of the God of this world, they are systematically seeking to dismantle the very institutions that God put in place in creation. The final assault is being made on what is generally called the nuclear family. That is, one man, one woman, united in marriage for life, caring for, supporting, loving the children they bring into the world. And now we're asked to believe that it matters nothing to the child that it's brought up by two men, or two women, or a succession of men and women. Men now, in the name of advancement, are, are interfering in the, in the very building blocks of life. <coughs> oh, it all makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you're a Christian. You would want us to be able to isolate the gene that causes this particular problem so that, so that no more infants are born with this problem or that problem. But what's man doing? He's seeking by his own efforts to produce the perfect man, the perfect person. We can, with all our genetic ability now, they are saying, we can gradually filter out everything that is wrong with man so that we produce the perfect man. And that's what man has been at ever since the dawn of time. Man has been at the idea of setting himself upon the throne. Man's technology, man's ability, man's knowledge, ultimately with a view to deifying man. And God is very soon going to move in, in judgment. It's gone beyond the pale now. I don't see personally from scripture that there is any possibility of recovery from the situation that we are in as nations today. Very, very soon. God is going to take the church home to glory. And that will get the so-called prophetic clock ticking again. And the pronouncement God has made as to judgments upon this world will take place in desperate and dreadful succession. And nothing is going to stop them. A world system, the buildings and the towers and the infrastructure and all that man has made it to be what it is, God is going to bring the whole thing tumbling down. And this world, at the end of that series of judgments, is going to be an absolute shattered, smoking wreck. But the Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, in answering Peter, who had said to the Lord, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And the Lord said to him, Peter, you don't need to worry about that. The Lord said, in the regeneration, you will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember that? So the Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter about a time that the Lord calls the regeneration. It's a word only used twice in the New Testament. There in Matthew 19 and again in Paul's writings to Titus. And there he is clearly speaking about the spirit-driven regeneration 
of those who belong to the Lord. When you and I got saved, we were regenerated by the Spirit of God, new life imparted. The Lord uses that word when he's speaking to Peter. Peter, in the regeneration, we use the word today, at least we do in, in my home country, we speak, about, we speak about regeneration projects in the inner cities where the industry and the houses and everything's all become very derelict and, and run down and so there's a lot of money pumped in and they say right we're going to regenerate this area we're going to bring new life into it we're going to remodel it we're going to change it and the Lord is saying to Peter Peter there's going to be a day it's called the regeneration and that's the day when you and your brethren are going to sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So when is it? Well Isaiah tells us. Behold I create, I remodel a new heavens and a new earth. At the end of that period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, at the end of that terrible tribulation period for the people of God, at the same time as they're going through such dreadful trouble God is heaping judgment upon the nations of the earth. And at the end of it all, when it's shattered, and more than three quarters of the remaining population of the world, the Christians having already been taken at the rapture, three quarters of the remaining population of the world will have perished. The rest are living in such horrible and awful and terrifying conditions that it seems that nothing can even support them. And just as it seems the nation of Israel is about to be finally annihilated, they repent. They cry to the God of heaven in a way that they've never done before. And the scripture says the heavens will open. It's Revelation chapter 19. The heavens will open and the Lord Jesus will come forth. Second Thessalonians 2 tells us how that with the very brightness of his coming, he will destroy the enemies of his people. And as the Lord descends in power and great glory, a tremendous regeneration will take place. So how can that happen? Because the one who will regenerate it is the one who created it in the first place. The one who spake and it was done. The one who commanded and it stood fast. All things were made by him. All things were made for him. All things were made through him. The one who made the whole creation in the first place. The one who humbled himself to become a servant. The one whom men took and crucified and put to an open shame. The one whom God has raised and glorified. When he comes again to establish his kingdom, he will come with a tremendous power of regenerating creatorial authority and this whole heavens and earth will be immediately made over anew. That's how Zechariah points out to us that as soon as he descends and his, his feet touch the Mount of Olives that mountain will divide asunder north and south and a great waterway will be established. The temple that Ezekiel speaks of in chapters 40 to 43 of, of, of his prophecy it will burst into being there won't be a process of building. There won't be tenders and contracts and cranes and dumper trucks. 
It's going to just appear in a moment. It's glorious, isn't it? That's this world that we live on. And somehow, you and I are going to be involved in all that. Interested? Would you want to be content just with the idea that somehow, sometime, the Lord's going to come to the air, we're going to be snatched away, I don't know anything beyond that, and I don't think I need to. But, says Paul, do you not know that you're going to judge angels? Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? You see, it's a very selfish attitude, really, isn't it? A very selfish attitude that says, the horizon for me is me being taken home to glory. Wouldn't it be a more grateful horizon if perhaps you fixed your eyes on the day when the one who died to save you and whom men still despise and the one whom they still blaspheme wouldn't it be a better horizon if you thought about the day that God's going to glorify him the day when that blessed man whom the world last saw crucified in agony and shame the day that the world sees him again glorious powerful coming to rule coming to reign he's going to be divinely vindicated in the scene of his rejection and Israel's going to be restored as the government on earth and you and I are going to judge angels and we're going to judge the world how's it all going to work well if the Lord hasn't come God willing we'll deal with it a bit more tomorrow evening if he has come before that without being too flippant I guess you'll speak to me in heaven and you'll say brother you tried to tell us a little bit about it boy were you wrong you didn't even begin to explain the wonder and the glory of it all but that's where we're heading my brother that's where we're heading dear sister and, and as we get to understand more of the way in which God is going to glorify Christ and he's going to involve the Christians of this age. He's going to involve you and me. The more we get to understand that, I promise the more it will affect the way we live today. May God bless his word. Shall we pray?